Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss the importance of play and creativity in the practice of the symbolic life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. If play expires in itself, without creating anything durable and vital, it is only play. But in the other case, it's called creative work. Out of a playful movement of elements whose interrelations are not immediately apparent, patterns arise which an observant and critical intellect can only evaluate afterwards. The creation of something new is not accomplished by the intellect, but by the play instinct acting from inner necessity. The creative mind plays with the object it loves. Carl Jung was not very enthusiastic about a rigid application of methods when it came to the practice of the inner life. As I stated in the last episode, episode 25, Preparing to Work with Your Dreams, there are no universally valid methods. It's a mistake to assume that techniques and methods are simply neutral activities that function independently of the individual. For Jung, success in any endeavor was much more dependent on the qualities a person brought to it, their way of being and acting, and not on the specific steps that they took toward their goal. In other words, any method is merely a path. The person walking the path is the crucial factor. Throughout his writing, Jung frequently quotes a saying from the ancient Chinese text, The Secret of the Golden Flower. If the wrong person uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. Now, this poses a particular challenge when we want to talk about the how of living a symbolic life. Because we can't appeal to the technical application of a sequence of actions, right? There's no 
Five Steps to Wisdom program that will work for everyone. What we bring to our inner work, the principles that guide us and the qualities that we embody are as vital as, if not more vital, than whatever steps we take. In essence, we could say, we are each our own method. That said, then, it's important to consider the core principles or fundamentals at work in this kind of practice and how we might cultivate the qualities and attitudes that adequately express them. One such principle, says Jung in our opening quote, is the necessity of play. Play, he tells us, is essential to creative work, and creative work, I would add, is the essence of the symbolic life. Now, let me quickly also add that when I talk about creative work, or for that matter, creativity, or the act of creation, I'm not necessarily talking about artistic creation. I'm not suggesting that the symbolic life is the exclusive domain of artists or poets or writers or anything like that. Many people balk at the idea of creativity because they don't see themselves as creative. Without question, however, inner work is creative work, and it's accessible to everybody, regardless of the presence or absence of any artistic talent. And so a better phrase perhaps might be creative living, for the goal ultimately is to live in a way that is potentially transformative, right? What is being created is, in fact, our own person, our own life, our own fully realized self. And so what I'd like to do here is to draw out three points that Jung makes about play and take a closer look at them. And the first point I want to look at is the distinction that he makes between play, which is only play, and the kind of play that is characteristic of creative work. If play expires in itself without creating anything durable and vital, writes Jung, it is only play. But in the other case, it's called creative work. In this second category, creative work, Jung also calls serious play. And it's distinguished, he says, by the production of something durable and vital. Again, we're not necessarily talking about the production of a piece of art or even of something concrete and tangible, though it can certainly take that form what is created could just as likely be a new kind of attitude to life, for instance, or a new understanding of, or even a new relationship to, something or someone. Still, something is produced. Some new value is created. Something new is born. 
and we can recognize its value as a creative work by its durability and its vitality. That is, it has a certain stability to it on the one hand and carries an energizing quality with it on the other. Play that is only play has more the character of entertainment. This might be something that has the quality of goofing off or blowing off steam or just simply enjoying some amusement in one form or another, right? And this, too, of course, has its place. This, too, is an archetypal need. Not everything needs to be meaningful, nor could it. I mean, how could we know what is meaningful if we didn't have the meaningless to contrast it with? Still, the world does not lack for entertainments, and their benefits, when it comes right down to it, are transitory at best. They expire in themselves, says Jung. What is only play tends to be the elaboration of some instinct or drive that is generally devoid of any reflection or mediation by a consciously developed point of view. However, it's also important to recognize here that some play, even when it's backed by a conscious viewpoint, has a shadow side to it. There is something like malevolent play. And at the extreme, we can see this aspect embodied, for example, in various hate groups, right? These groups often have their own system of images and gestures and even costumes. This, too, is a kind of play, manifested, though it is, through noxious ideologies. Such play is destructive in its effects, and it's not creative. And this brings us back to that consideration of the inadequacy of simply adopting methods and techniques by themselves without taking into account the crucial factor of the person who's making use of those methods. And returning to the creator side of things, we see that the root of serious play, according to Jung, is inner necessity. That is to say, something pushes up from within us that calls for some creative response. Now, often enough, this is symptomatic. Life, in some way, has stopped flowing. It's become a problem, a trial. What before, perhaps, we did without thinking and without effort, now we can't help but ask the question, why? But inner necessity can also come in a moment of discovery, full of wonder, surprise, or delight. Some secret of the world seems to have been disclosed that calls us to grow into it or to live up to it. And we glimpse, even if just for a moment, 
what Thomas Merton calls the vivid awareness of infinite being at the roots of our own limited being. And we're moved to offer some response. And this leads to the second point that I want to look at from what Jung says about play, which is that play thrusts us into an encounter with the unknown. Out of a playful movement of elements whose interrelations are not immediately apparent, he writes, patterns arise. That there's this playful movement of elements indicates that the center of initiative lies outside of our will. We don't initiate the movement. There's a self-moving power in the psyche. Dreams, fantasies, insights, moods, all these unfold on the field of our consciousness without the need of our active involvement. Oftentimes, this activity seems random and chaotic, but Jung suggests that there is meaning within the seeming madness. There are interrelations, he says, between these elements, even if they're not immediately apparent. In all chaos, there is a cosmos, he writes elsewhere. In all disorder, a secret order. A quote we've used before on this podcast. And what this implies is that play involves not seeing ahead of time where things are leading. And that requires that we set aside whatever agendas we may have and try to simply observe what's arising in and around us. And if we can do this, if we can bear the potential discomfort and disorientation, we may start to notice that some pattern starts to take shape, some order, some meaning. And all of this demands of us an attitude of openness, receptivity, patience, and curiosity, not to mention a good dose of courage. Such an attitude means that there is something like a co-creation taking place. Even as we work with the material of our inner lives and try to shape a meaningful response to it, we are, at the same time, allowing ourselves to be shaped and transformed in return. This is what makes play a truly creative work. Through it, we learn and grow and become more completely ourselves. Something durable and vital emerges. In the book of Proverbs, there's a depiction of one aspect of the biblical tradition in which the personified figure of wisdom is described as having been active with God in the original creation of the world. And it's a story that weaves together the themes that we've been looking at, the themes of play and creativity. 
So I want to take a moment here and read a passage about wisdom at play. And it's spoken from wisdom's perspective. And this is what she says. The Lord created me, the first of his works, long ago, before all else that he made. I was formed in earliest times at the beginning, before earth itself. I was born when there was yet no ocean, and there were no springs brimming with water. Before the mountains were settled in their place, before the hills I was born, when as yet he had made neither land, nor streams, nor the mass of the earth's soil. When he set the heavens in place, I was there. When he girdled the ocean with the horizon, when he fixed the canopy of clouds overhead and confined the springs of the deep, when he prescribed limits for the sea so that the waters do not transgress his command, when he made earth's foundations firm. Then I was at his side each day, his darling and delight, playing in his presence continually, playing over his whole world, while my delight was in humankind. Here, the fundamental principle of creation is wisdom. Before anything else, before the soil or the sky or the ocean, God, it is said, created wisdom. Wisdom, then, in this tradition, we could say, is essential to life. More fundamental even than earth or air or water. Whoever finds me, she cries out elsewhere, finds life. And wisdom, in this passage, is distinguished by three qualities, creation, play, and delight. And these three, it seems, are interrelated somehow. We've seen the connection already between creation and play, but, but this passage adds the element of delight. This, I would say, is where play takes on the spirit of play. Play, says the writer and artist Stephen Nachmanovich, is the free spirit of exploration, doing and being for its own joy. And this is the takeaway of all that has been said so far. And it's the third point from Jung's quote to which I want to draw attention. And it's the element of delight, of joy, or in Jung's words, of love. The creative mind, he says, plays with the object it loves. And this points to something relational at the heart of play and creativity. Creativity is not the work of the intellect. It's not something that we do 
or impose on something else. It's not our private act or achievement. It's a movement of love, which means that it's a moment of meeting with some aspect of the world, an intermingling of our deepest subjectivity with the subjectivity of the other. Whether that's another person or being, a profound idea or image, or the ineffable presence of the transcendent. But this also means that in any act of loving, creative play, we are not just the agent. We too are affected. Playing is simultaneously a self-forgetting, a letting go of a fixed or closed-off sense of ourselves, and a self-discovery, an opening to new and unknown possibilities within ourselves and in the world. To play is to open ourselves to the world in such a way that both are changed. And what Jung once wrote about the relationship between the therapist and the patient in analysis, I would say equally applies to this relationship of the individual to the world as experienced through the spirit of play. And he says this, The meeting of two personalities is like the contact of two chemical substances. If there is any reaction, both are transformed. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.